Hello and welcome to Cabin Fever Fables. I'm Sarah Hunt from the independent publisher Saraband. We've not taken to the airwaves since the summer and the end of our original lockdown series one of this podcast. But today we have a special takeover by three Bronte researchers and they're about to tell us about the anniversary they're celebrating. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Dr. Sophie Franklin of Tubingen University to tell us more. Welcome to the Brontes Reimagined, Reappraised and Revisited with Sarah Band. Uh, the three of us, myself, Adele and Claire, um, were meant to be getting together quite a bit over the summer to discuss all things Brontes, but due to the pandemic, I've been unable to. So we felt it was a nice opportunity to bring us all together to chat about our favourite characters, least favourite characters, um, and some of the kind of bit part characters we think deserve more airtime in honour of the publication anniversary of Jane Eyre on the 16th of October, 1847. Excited. So um, it gives me a great pleasure then to introduce Adele Hay, who is a lifelong Bronte aficionada and a passionate advocate for Anne Bronte's place in the canon of classic English writers, alongside her obviously better known sisters, Charlotte and Emily. Um, Adele is just about to start a PhD at Loughborough University, and um, she is going to be looking at in more detail the textual criticism of Anne's work and how it's been edited and its legacy. Thank you, Claire. Um, I would like to introduce Sophie Franklin, the author of Charlotte Bronte Revisited, which was the, the starting point for this series of books the Bronte sisters looked at um, from the 21st century. Dr Sophie Franklin is a researcher researcher and lecturer at Tübingen University. Um, she has a particular expertise in representations of violence, the Brontes and afterlives. Sophie has previously worked with Claire on the closeness of the Brontes project, which included the Bronte Society conference in 2017 and a special issue of Bronte studies in 2019. Thank you, Adele. Uh, I would like to introduce Dr. Claire O'Callaghan, who is a lecturer in English at Loughborough University. Claire works on Victorian and neo-Victorian literature and culture and is the author of Emily Bronte Revisited. And this summer, she, alongside Dr. Sarah Fanning, organised the wonderful conference uh, Bronte 2020 in aid of the Bronte Parsonage Museum and Library. Thank you. Um, so should we talk about who our favourite Bronte protagonist is? Which is a really hard, so which, if we had to pin it down to one character, um, who would it be? Which I think is probably an impossible question, but yeah, where would you start? It's Jane Eyre's birthday, so I, as somebody who is, I guess, an advocate of Charlotte Bronte, <laughs> I kind of felt the need to choose Jane. Although I did have a bit of a struggle thinking about why she's my favourite. I don't know about you both. I feel like I've had an evolution with my mm. relationship with Jane over time. So initially, when I first read the book, I thought, oh, I'm a super fan. I love Jane Eyre. She can do no wrong. And then I got a bit sceptical and suspicious of her. And now I just kind of have this acceptance of her flaws. So I guess that's the angle I'm coming at Jane Eyre with. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of 
she's just very complex, flawed, contradictory, hypocritical, um, very strong, independent person and character and very radical for the time in which she was written. Mm-hmm. Um, I would describe her as a kind of problematic fave. So I'll just maybe just talk about that first as to why um, why I kind of feel she's quite flawed and why we kind of do have to acknowledge that now because in order for her to kind of win at the end if you think of it as winning and kind of she's victorious she's got the man and the house and the money and the baby and all these things um and her freedom and independence if you want to think of it in that way all these people have to die or be like pushed aside (laughs) they have to be kind of thrown overboard to her for her to kind of reach this goal um so it's very individualistic and i think quite a few people have written about her in relation to kind of white feminism in that sense so i think there's definitely that to contend with with jane but i think there are still those moments in the novel you know when you read i am no burden no net ensnares me Mm -hmm. and i'm a free human being with an independent will that still resonates now. Um, and even when she says, you know, women feel just as men feel. And when she stands up to her cousin, John Reed and her aunt and Mr. Brocklehurst and all these hypocritical, cruel, horrible people, you still want her to kind of advocate for herself. And I guess that's still what she stands for, for me and that kind of instinct that she has to follow her own path. Um, even if sometimes that can be problematic. But. Mm, yeah. Sticking with, I guess, Charlotte, I mean, I, because I, my initial thought was Jane as well, and I had the same thing with you. It's kind of, well, well why would I pick her? Because, as you've said, she she has flaws and, and she's very complex. Um, but actually, the, the character that I picked, which isn't from Emily's book, I'm afraid, um, sticking with Charlotte instead, <laughs> is Lucy Snow um, from Villette. And I know that Villette is is a kind of Marmite novel for a lot of people, that you either love it or you hate it. Um, Lucy is a character who I think is um, probably one of Charlotte's most grounded and realist characters. And what I mean by that is she is so psychologically complex but actually, what I really like about Lucy is the way that we have access to those emotions. And so we experience, um, you know, her sense of dislocation. We experience her fears of traveling. I think her loneliness really kind of comes across. And that all, I guess, sounds really, really glum. So why would I like her as my, one of my favorite characters? I think it's for exactly those things, because she's someone who you can kind of identify with. And actually, I think I was trying to think of what are the bad things that she does in the novel and I couldn't really think of anything particularly bad that Lucy Snow does mm. that that I have the same kind of level of critique for some of the decisions that Jane makes maybe um so I like the fact that she's kind of a character that that feels a little bit in formation and I think she's actually got a heart of gold she's incredibly caring those moments you know I think early particularly those early chapters with um uh you know when she's kind of looking after um Polly and then when she's you know looking after other people all along the way and I just really admire the kind of um she's got a a kind of despite her flaws and I guess her psychological complexity she's got a resilience Mm -hmm. to her that makes her strong 
Um, and I always feel like there's, there was more of her than we kind of got from Charlotte, if that makes sense. Um, so I like that. I like the journey she goes on in the sense of it. It's, it's more a, a very different kind of development. Um, but I really like, I'm somebody who, even though I don't like Marmite, I love Billette so, um, as a book. Um, yeah. So Lucy for me. I really like um, what you said, Sophie, about how your relationship to the book and the character has changed over time. Because I, I think I feel quite similarly about Jane as well. And um, <clears throat> so the character that I would say I enjoy the most um, is Helen Graham from The mm -hmm. Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And kind of for similar reasons that I think that you uh, like Lucy, Claire, she's quite, once you get to her, her diary section, she is very psychologically complex. But I really enjoy that device that Anne uses. So you're, you're not in Helen's head initially. You see her as this very strange, um, you see her as this strange kind of tragic widow who comes in and disturbs everybody in the village mm -hmm. and kind of goes against everything that they believe in. So she kind of, I think she, in doing that, Anne was luring readers into a false sense of security. So you maybe had this very, um, very polite, uh, well, polite is probably the wrong word, but this very kind of sanitized, here's this very stereotypical English village it almost feels a bit Jane Austen and then she dumps this kind of gothic romantic lady in there to um kind of shake everyone up a little bit but then you get to her letters uh, her diary sorry you get to Helen's diary and the whole concept of her being this romantic tragic widow is kind of thrown out of the window and you get a very real very disturbing look into the domestic abuse that she suffered and how she's weathered that and how she um, makes the very, um, very controversial decision to remove herself and her young son from the situation. And you get in, in the, um, Helen's diary section, you get a very good look at how she evolves as a character as well. So she starts off as this young, hopeful girl who falls in love with this very rakish character and she won't listen to anyone and she insists that you know he might he might be good eventually reformed rakes make the best husbands and all of that kind of stuff that she believes in quite early on and you go you go through the loss with her when she learns that that's not going to happen for her and her husband is this horrible man and then you kind of you're there when she makes that decision to leave and she becomes a very kind of hardened person. She becomes a lot stronger through that um, and the decisions that she makes. And then once you're out of her diary and you're back to Gilbert's point of view again in the present, in the later part of the novel, you get to see that even though she's gone through all of that, it's not made her especially bitter it's made her a better judge of character definitely but it's not crushed any of um the spirit that she had when she was a bit younger i think that all of those characters are kind of joined by being strong but having vulnerabilities 
they're kind of strong and vulnerable, I guess, in different ways at the same time, which is really interesting that we kind of hit them in that way. I feel bad about this, but I guess the next thing we were going to talk about is our least favourite Bronte character. And I feel bad because I could think of so many that I don't like, which makes me feel like a bad Bronte fan and a bad Bronte scholar. Um, but they're, they're, I guess that's partly to do with the fact that they they, con- they construct some really interesting characters. Um, yeah. Where do you want to start? <laughs> Um, I wouldn't say that they're they're bad more because I when I was thinking about this I was really struggling to think of bad characters that I didn't enjoy reading. It's more a case of loving to hate them. Yes. And yeah, yeah. and maybe recognizing people that you might have known in there and just yeah, they're just very kind of they're they're so well written that you hate them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um I, I'm happy to go first because I think I've I've Probably there's no surprise in some of mine that I really don't like Heathcliff. <laughs> I just do not like him. Um, I find there's nothing romantic about him. He's rude. He's violent. He's obnoxious. He's just awful. I mean, everything about him is, is in my eyes, like, just repugnant. And I don't find any redeeming qualities. And I'm not, I don't even see what Kathy sees in him I don't really see what he sees in her either in some respect <laughs> and, but I know that there's that kind of flawed I, I do empathize with particularly some of the, the obviously the horrible experiences he has with his child so young Heathcliff I feel for but adult Heathcliff can yeah I just can't forgive him for what he did to Isabella's dog um but, Isabella as well Isabella as well yeah yeah well yeah absolutely <laughs> um but actually, me picking out the dog links me to the other character because I, I was selfish and greedy and I had two. And the other character I also picked because they're violent against animals. And that is the dastardly young Tom Bloomfield from Agnes Grey, um, who is just a horrid little boy. And, um, you know, I, I have nothing against children at all, but he is so... I know he's learned his behaviours and he has been encouraged in his behaviours. But I think what Anne does really well in Agnes Grey is take you into her frustrations with that kind of um, just just he's, he just wants to be nasty and he gets a real kick out of it. And obviously that whole exchange around the birds, um, you know, somebody, someone like me who is a vegan and a, um, you know, animal rights advocate, uh, there's just, those are my kind of, you know, I, I don't even like to hate them. I just don't like those characters <laughs> in some way. Maybe I like to hate Heathcliff a little bit, but, but actually, and I think Tom Bloomfield is a bit of a bud in Heathcliff. I think that's part of my problem as well with him. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. you've got a brilliant one Sophie uh, which go on tell us yeah I was thinking well so mine is Sinjin Rivers who <laughs> yeah, just but I think what Adele what you just said is interesting because I do agree I don't I kind of enjoy I don't know about enjoy I find him such a fascinating and strange character and the fact that she ends the book with him I still know grapple with that decision I'm like why what were you doing there it's just quite an odd way for me to end that book 
Uh, I guess it's like tempering the kind of unchristian thing or focus on materialism. But anyway, Sinjin himself, not only is he, you know, <laughs> perfect, which in a kind of really annoying way, you know, he's got yeah. this chiseled features, he's really good looking and he probably knows it and he's very learned and also he wants to be a missionary in India and you think, that's very dodgy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he's very arrogant because he wants to force not only Jane to be a missionary with him in India, but also to marry him. And it's just bizarre. Well, not bizarre. And then I wrote down the bit where she says that she knows that if she did marry him, she'd, she'd have to endure all forms of love, which she doubts not he would scrupulously observe. And Stevie Davies, um, in the, I think, 2006 edition of Jane Eyre, she writes that basically this is him implying that he would be willing to rape her or force her um, to have sex. Obviously, then husbands legally could not rape wives. And that was until the 1991. Um, mm -hmm. But still, there is this sense of violence that he would be, you know, he would scrupulously observe all the forms of love. You think, oh, that is absolutely disgusting. It makes your skin mm -hmm. crawl. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> I think I think he's a really good choice. I think that that the proposal scene with Jane is there's such a sense of entitlement. Yeah. That he has. Yeah. He thinks it's <laughs> a good offer. He's like, why wouldn't you say yes? And you're yeah. like, no. And then she knows she's gonna die there, and it's not that appealing that she just yeah. has to be your handmaid. Do, do you think Charlotte wrote him so that we wouldn't like him? Yeah, it's interesting because then you think about the ending, and obviously you're kind of meant to, I mean, she says that she cries when she gets his, what we assume is the last letter, but then she's like, but why, why would you shed a tear? This is a really kind of positive, glorious thing that's happening to him. And then you think, okay, well, he's also not a particularly warm or kind person. Yeah, he's, um, he's not got that many redeeming features in some yeah. ways, has he? Yeah, other than he's a martyr for God, which I yeah. think in the, in the period would have been seen in a different light to now. So that's maybe the difference. And it's kind of like, I don't know, I like to think of it as kind of a validation of Jane's choice. She's like, yeah, I yeah. knew this would happen. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And I'm glad I didn't follow him to India. Yeah. I find him really boring as well. He is very, very boring. I imagine it, like being with him would be so boring. <laughs> That's right to say, but I just think he would be. And he forces her to stop learning German and to learn Hindustani. Mm -hmm. so, to look, and I just feel like he just gives her no choice. He just believes that, yeah, women are there to help him. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How, how can you match those then, Adele? What have you got? <laughs> I chose uh, somebody else who is quite arrogant and entitled. Um, <laughs> uh, Walter Hargrave from yeah. Lieutenant of Wildfell Hall. He, I mean, you could pick anybody from Wildfell Hall, really. Any of the Arthur, friends as yeah, well. Yeah, Arthur Huntingdon's friends. But um, Walter Hargrave, he comes across at first as quite... You know, he's kind of a friend to Helen. He says that he doesn't approve of Arthur's behaviour as much. He's much more moderate, he seems, anyway. You know, and there's there's a scene later on in the book where he removes Helen's son from um, the room that they're all in when things are getting a bit too much. You know, they're all... Um, Helen's very worried about the fact that they all um, encourage his son's bad behaviour mm. and... 
Walter Hargrave comes in and picks up the son and takes him outside and Helen can leave as well. And you think, okay, you know, he's, he's not as bad as the rest of them. And then there's the scene where um, Helen finds out that Arthur's having an affair and it's Walter that's told her about it. And he then immediately takes the opportunity to tell her that he's in love with her and they she could be his mistress and nobody would care and of she she kind of to begin with she just looks at him and I can't remember what it is that she says but it's something really cutting like what how dare you are you know what are you insinuating that kind of thing and he's clearly not expecting to be um he's clearly not expecting the rejection and you get a, f- a few more scenes after that, you know, maybe a year later and two years later where he's still kind of harassing her and saying, mm. let me help you. Why are you so ungrateful? I just want to be helpful. I've been nothing but nice to you. And, it, you know, it gets to the point where she stops visiting his mother and sister, who are her friends, just so that she won't run into him um, while she's visiting. And... I think one of their their final encounters, she has let him know that she's planning to leave. And he sees that as another sign to try again and says, what, you know, why would you leave alone? You could have my help. Let me help you. I love you so much. And she gets so, she gets quite scared at that point. And I think she's, you know, she gets out her palette knife because she's been painting in there. She gets out a palette knife and says, you will stay away from me. Mm. I do not like you. Um, you know, is that enough to make you leave me alone kind of thing? But he's just, he he flips between being nice and helpful. So he like kind of builds her into a false sense of security and says, oh yeah, you know, I don't like your husband's behavior. I'm going to help you. I'm nice and friendly. She speaks to him a little bit. He then says, I still love you. Let me help you. We can run away together. You should be my mistress because your husband doesn't care. And then as soon as she rejects him, he turns really, really nasty. Mm. And he's especially dangerous as well because he's quite charming, intelligent and things like that. But he tries to show off as well. Like he's intelligent to the point of trying to show off quite a lot. And I think I've highlighted a quote somewhere that I thought was hilarious. I was just because I was reading about him again this morning. But um, Helen's. I think she's doing some painting in the library where she thinks that nobody will come and disturb her. And he walks in and sees that she's painting and says, oh, I'll only be a minute. I'm just getting a book. But then he comes over to look at what she's painting. And um, Anne's written, being a man of taste, he had something to say on this subject as well as another. And having modestly commented on it without much encouragement from me, he proceeded to expatiate on the art in general. So he's kind of like a... Yeah, it's he he makes me think of those memes where you see like the classical art memes where you've got a woman just rolling her eyes as a as the man in the photo in in the painting is trying to explain something to her that she already knows about. Yeah, he's a mansplainer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. So the next one we were gonna talk about is minor characters in a Bronte book that we would like to know more about. Um yeah, they they deserve more airtime or deserve more airtime. Yeah, um, Adele, do you want to start? Yeah, um, so I went for Matilda Murray from Agnes Grey, who's the younger sister of Rosalie Murray, and I, I mean, I can't say that I really like Matilda because I'm not keen on her treatment of animals, but 
I think that the way that she's been treated by her family and by society is quite unfair and the whole Matilda's whole story is just quite tragic to me and very upsetting and I don't even like the way that Agnes talks about her so yeah Agnes um kind of implies that she's a lost cause she's a wild child um and even later on in the book where Matilda is her mum is starting to her mother's starting to rein Matilda in a little bit Agnes says something like you know it's about it's about time um she took an interest in her daughter kind of thing but I really like Matilda's story because she's presented as a a bit of a tomboy and she's not interested in learning all of the things that her older sister is learning. You know, she doesn't want to attract her husband. She wants to be outside riding horses and hunting with her father and her brothers. That's what she's interested in. You know, she's quite a lively girl. Um, She does swear a lot but you know she's hanging out with her dad and her brothers all the time who aren't particularly nice people um and it makes me really sad to think of a quite bright young girl having no role models to admire really so she doesn't want to be like her older sister who's this beautiful um very attractive young woman she doesn't want to do what her mum tells her to which is to wear her nice clothes and learn things that will attract her husband later on the only people really that she has to look up to if she's not gonna look up to the women in her life are these horrible coarse men that are around her and it's almost like a rebellion she's like I don't want to be like Rosalie and I don't want to be like my mother so I'm just going to go in the complete opposite direction and I just think you know what if she'd had like Mary Wollstonecraft as a government a governess and he'd encouraged her to channel that energy into something really useful so I'd, I'd quite and it the ending of Matilda's story in that book always really upsets me because it's almost like she's been broken and she's slowly starting to accept that she's got to you know follow in her sister's footsteps and she's not allowed out to the stables anymore and she's kind of quietly starting to follow all these rules that have been put in place for her I feel so sad now. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Sophie, who did you have? I went for Miss Temple uh, in Jane Eyre, Mariah Temple. So she is the kind of head teacher at um, Lowood School, where Jane Eyre goes. It's kind of school for orphan girls. And I've just chosen her because... She's just very nice and very kind. And I feel like we all need a bit of kindness and just general niceness at the moment. And she stands up to Mr. Brocklehurst, who spreads lies about Jane. Um, and she kind of clears Jane's name in the school. She's really lovely to Helen Burns, who thinks really highly of her. She gets the girls to eat bread and cheese when they've had this inedible breakfast of burnt porridge and obviously Mm -hmm. Mr. Brocklehurst is like well obviously they need to you know I don't know eat this terrible stuff I don't know in in honor of God or something yeah Um, yeah and then I also feel it's interesting that she has this really profound kind of calming 
transformative effect on Jane Eyre. And then Miss Temple becomes Mrs. Nasmith. So she marries the Reverend Mr. Nasmith. And then literally the last vision we have, Miss Temple, Mariah Temple, is her going off in this carriage with her husband and new life. And Jane talks about the fact that once Miss Temple left Leeds, even Lowood, she undergoes this kind of transformation back to who she used to be. She doesn't feel as kind of focused or calm. She feels again kind of irritable and passionate and kind of fiery and rebellious like she used to be when she was younger. Not necessarily bad things, but I think she definitely felt the benefit of Miss Temple's presence. I just feel that's it's quite profound uh, that somebody had that kind of transformative impression on her. And also, again, it's kind of sad that she just kind of goes off in a coach married. It's always that way that, you know, the book ends or <laughs> life ends with marriage and then we don't hear anything else about it. So, yeah, I would choose Miss Temple. <laughs> what about you, Claire? <laughs> So my choice is also from Jane Eyre. Um, I picked Grace Poole. I'm absolutely fascinated by Grace Poole. Um, Jane says uh, to herself, um, my mind had been running on Grace Poole, that living enigma, that mystery of mysteries. And the reason I'm fascinated by Grace Poole is because... She's there as a kind of plot function on the one hand. She is there to be that nurse for um, Bertha. But this woman has is also pretty much locked in that windowless room with this woman in this care capacity. And it makes me wonder, I want to know all about her employment history, basically. There's some little little details around the fact that her son is um, a superintendent at an asylum elsewhere. And I'm really fascinated by that idea of, well, oh, did, did, she, did she work there then? None of this information is provided other than this kind of throwaway reference to, this, to her kind of son. But it, it suggests that she obviously has much more medical training than we're aware of. Um, she's clearly psychologically very resilient. The fact that she's kind of, you know, like I say, it's just her and Bertha all this time. Uh, I want to know how much she gets paid because obviously she must be getting really well paid. Um, and kind of, yeah, if you're thinking about her as a rounded human being, well, she doesn't really have a life at all because it's just her and, and Bertha. And yet she's obviously got a son so what is going on with with you know what's her backstory where's you know where has she come from and uh how does she end up in this position essentially and some of it obviously we we kind of find out bits of information from from rochester but i think that she's set up in this incredibly kind of interesting gothic way and obviously jane thinks she's a drunk and all of that kind of stuff and that she's dangerous but actually well again she's she's uh, you know a really kind of obviously bright, clever woman who is on kind of literally, I guess, on guard for one of a better term, looking after um, her patient. So interesting because, yeah, in the book, I, you always think um, who does know about Bertha and then they say it's the surgeon and Grace Poole, isn't it? So maybe mm. that's the link. It's yeah. how she got there. I didn't, I never noticed that she had a son. That's fascinating. You just miss all these little details. Well, yeah, this, I think that's one of the things, I think with Jane Eyre, that's definitely, going back to your earlier point about evolution of the book over time and your reading of it, mm -hmm. I definitely have that. And I, I still find, I think with 
um, I think with Jane and definitely with um, a book like The Less as well, that every time I go back to it, and actually with Weathering Heights to some extent, um, I get something new, some new detail that I missed the first time round. And once you know it, you go, how did I miss that? How did I not see? Or how did that pass me by? And yeah, that that little reference, um, I'm fascinated by this kind of... um, I guess asylum history and we know Charlotte obviously was interested in that we know that she's reading medical writing at the time um you know she's looking at James Cal Pritchard's writing on um moral madness and has a particular take on that and I believe she also uh visited asylums um yeah the the reference to the asylum I think it's, it's from memory there's a reference that there was an asylum at Grimsby, I think, from memory, that um, Grace Poole's son works at. But there was no asylum there, as far as I know. Um, so I'm just fascinated. I'm fascinated by that history and Charlotte's construction of it. And, um, yeah, I guess it's all part of that really exciting Gothic richness to that book um, that, that, yeah, is is why it's so loved today. Um, so for our last... I guessed, or, well, kind of one but last, uh, creepiest character, which I think is probably, (laughs) or creepy character or creepy moment, or uh, something that might connect to Halloween, because we were talking about the fact that Halloween is, I guess, going to be upon us in in the not-too-distant future. Um, And I'm happy to start with this, uh, because I think I've, there are lots of different creepy moments. And by that, I mean, I guess, ones that make me shudder. One that actually springs to mind, obviously, is the moment in Weathering Heights with, um, you know, Kathy outside the window. But actually, probably the the moment, one of the moments in any Bronte book that disturbs me the most is another moment from Villette. And it's Madame Beck and her spying. And her looking at Lucy while she's asleep, which is just really odd. And Lucy pretending to be asleep or play dead (laughs) in some way. And the fact that she comes into the room and is snooping and it's just so incredibly creepy. And there's that whole really rich narrative around surveillance and watching. Um, But Madame Beck is kind of a bit shameless about it. She just is quite almost overt with her snooping. And I find that, yeah, she goes over and she looks at Lucy, doesn't she, while she's asleep and and is kind of trying to use phrenology to to read her. That is just a, a, I find it really odd because I think, oh gosh, I can't imagine someone staring at me when I'm asleep in that way. It just, it makes me creep out. (laughs) So that's mine. I think Charlotte is really, really good at writing terror yeah. and just making you kind of feel that sensation. I mean, I was going to choose for my creepiest moment, the, the red room in Jane mm-hmm. Eyre where uh, Jane is a child and she's being punished and she is sent to the room in which her uncle died mm-hmm. and locked in. And she kind of, works herself up to the point where she thinks that she sees something or hears something and she you know she's making loads of noise and banging on the door and trying to get someone to let her out and the experience actually makes her quite ill for a while afterwards and just the whole build-up while she's sat in the room and she's going through exactly how she feels and what she's noticing and what she imagines her uncle 
might be thinking and and things like this and everyone's told her that she's a horrible girl and she's going to go to hell and things which is you know where naughty children go which is Mm. a delightful thing to tell a child um but yeah I just I remember reading that for the first time um when I was maybe 12 I think and I was at my aunt's house and all of the bedrooms at my aunt's house were in the cellar so you know I was sat in the cellar reading this creepy red room section and I was absolutely terrified but even even as an adult you can kind of you can feel the terror that's building up as she's just sat in this room thinking about dead people and being dragged away by evil spirits yeah yeah definitely I think with that scene as well I remember the first time I read it and and having to go back and reread it because you're kind of going, what just happened? And it's basically Charlotte writing a panic attack, isn't it? And it, yeah. it, it just kind of, it doesn't come out of nowhere, but I think you're right. It's, it is, she's really good at that terror. And the thing that always strikes me about, again, on rereadings of Jane now is when you're looking at that and you know, it's a child and that child, she hasn't got the kind of, um, she's, not, she's had a really bad day that day. And then yeah. she's in this space. But she obviously hasn't got those kind of parameters or boundaries to, to kind of calm herself. So it yeah. just escalates and escalates. Um, yeah, that's a great moment. Yeah, and then when she sees herself in the mirror mm. and then you've got a twin, and then obviously later on in the novel, you've got Bertha in the mirror as well. So obviously mm. it becomes this kind of motif. Yeah. Yeah, my, mine are from Jane Eyre as well, because I think that one does for me have I mean I get yeah Villette has a lot of kind of creepy moments but yeah Jane Eyre has lots of them there's so much supernatural mm. I, I think the first one would be when Jane first meets Rochester and it's a really kind of foggy creepy night and and actually it's even night she's going to pull something so yeah yeah it's um, like, it's like, isn't it um it's, it's kind of a gothic kind of atmosphere isn't yeah, it yeah yeah there's definitely fog <laughs> And then this massive dog appears and she thinks it's this guy trash, which is the kind of mythical kind of uh, ghost dog that would roam the woods and, and kind of countryside and everything, terrorizing people. And then obviously she's confronted with this horse, with this man on the horse and he falls off. But then he also thinks that she's a fairy from the other side and everything. So there's all these kind of layers that they both kind of see each other as these kind of supernatural visions. And then, this one's not creepy. It's kind of makes me laugh, to be honest, every time I read it. When coming back to Sinjin and the proposal, when <laughs> she's trying to extricate herself from his his grasp, she hears Rochester's voice on the wind. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's most I don't I still again, I still don't know what to make of this. It's such a kind of weird interruption and kind of insertion into the text that she doesn't hear god's voice or her own it's you know rochester's yeah um and that is yeah very supernatural and very uh convenient yeah <laughs> for the plot <laughs> yeah there's some great ghosts i think in in ver- in various bronte novels as well yeah, James um, has very weird dreams as well, doesn't she? And kind yeah. of yeah, because I was as you were talking, I was thinking again that the if I was I remember reading Jane for the first time and thinking about when she's in bed and she's hearing what we then learn to be Bertha and the laugh and the kind of almost like you know the noises that are going on the running round basically that I would definitely be 
kind of freaking out that it's a ghost <laughs> in some way. Her door's um, getting rattled and like her yeah. candles are blown out and her veil is ripped up and obviously she thinks it's either Grace Poole or yeah, you would think, is there a ghost? Is there a ghost? Yeah. Yeah. Idea. yeah. Obviously there's the nun in Valette and which is uh, again terribly and I really like how Charlotte does that whole narrative around the nun and then the playing with, with costume that she does in there. Um, weirdly, the only ghosts that don't creep me out in a Bronte novel are um, the ones at the end of Weathering Heights. Oh, right, yeah. Um, the kind of suggestion that people sometimes see things on the moors. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, I guess the, the sheep obviously are running away. They pick up something. So that is a little bit creepy. But for some reason, that doesn't have the same effect on me as some of those other moments that, that you've both kind of highlighted as well. I guess because doesn't the narrator and Lockwood's like the kind of quiet slumber so it feels quite kind of peaceful weirdly it's like they're peaceful ghosts they're just kind of <laughs> running around having a nice time I was just going to say all of the ghosts that Charlotte writes about feel very threatening they're not mm. quite as mm. you know you, you they're not quite as peaceful and they're all in enclosed very creepy spaces like doesn't Lucy get locked in the attic at some point. That's then, a yeah. brilliant moment. Yeah, she yeah. gets locked in, and there's the rats. Um, in fact, I'm always I find that whole extended section when she's basically on her own in that summer in that kind of um, building. There is so much, and I guess you're meant to. You're meant to feel her her terror, to use your word for her. You're meant to feel her her isolation and her loneliness. But yeah that whole moment is is a great one particularly with the rats that's horrible <laughs> um yeah and they're often kind of projections from their inner kind of minds and psychology so even with lucy obviously it's a it's a man under the like a yeah or something isn't it yeah. you know? and yet she's convinced that it's this actual ghost and you think wow there's something yeah. seriously going on in yeah. your mind that makes you actually believe that this is yeah a spirit or yeah. She obviously, again, a little bit like young Jane, allows or doesn't allow, kind of escalates, psychologically yeah. escalates, doesn't she? I mean, to the fact, obviously, that she ends up going into that church and obviously has that deeply kind of spiritual moment and kind of conversation. But she, I mean, yeah, Charlotte kind of does let her mind run quite wild, uh, I think, as well. I can't think of any others off the top of my head. I'm trying to think with Anne Bronte because I think I like that idea, Adele, that you mentioned about Helen is perceived to be this kind of romantic gothic figure, and then obviously, yeah, it's kind of brought back down to earth and very realistic. Because I'd never thought about her in that way because I always think of Anne Bronte's work as very realistic in comparison mm. to Emily and Charlotte's, and that's I like that contrast. But that's such an interesting way of thinking about Helen, how she's kind of seen by the the village and society is this kind of threat descending from somewhere yeah. <laughs> i'll edit this out but there isn't there aren't any ghosts in her novels are there not a single no. ghost in or no supernatural not that i mean adele what do you are there any supernatural happenings i can't think <laughs> of any yeah i was trying to think of this as well and i think the closest that we get is helen's crumbling house yeah <laughs> You know this this creepy wildfell hall. She's only living in one part of it because she can yeah. only afford to, yeah. um, you know, make one part of it habitable. The rest is kind of crumbling everywhere, and the garden's overgrown, and it's all very creepy. But yeah, that she doesn't. She kind of dangles it there, uh, 
it, you read it almost thinking, oh, we're going to get another Wuthering Heights or another Jane Eyre here. But no, she snaps it back to reality almost mm. as soon as you see it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess that brings us to the end of our little chats, uh, thinking about our favourite Bronte characters, which is really hard to pin down, our least favourite characters, all of the kind of more minor characters that we would like to know more about, and then uh, creepy moments, creepy characters across the Bronte texts. And we're all looking forward to hearing what other people have to say in terms of um, making their own suggestions uh, with those categories. So thanks for chatting, guys. Thank Thank you. you. Take care. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. A huge thanks to Sophie, Claire and Adele for that comprehensive tour of Bronte characters. From the inspirational, kind and courageous, all the way to the mean, depraved, cruel and downright spooky ones. You can find out more about their books in the programme notes. And you can follow us at Saraband Books. Thanks again for listening in.